1 Samuel 16, 14 to 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Isn't it, wouldn't it be nice if that was said of our children? Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. 1 Samuel 18, 5-15 And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens, ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can they have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. 1 Samuel 198 8-12 And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul. 
so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. 1 Samuel 26, 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. 1 Samuel 26, 6 to 11. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Jacob's brother Abishai, the son of Jeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear struck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, and the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear and it, that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Thanks, Helen. Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's so great to be back with you guys. It's been a great couple weeks, a very full couple weeks, but I've missed being here with you guys. And it's so great to be back today. As I was thinking earlier this year about what to talk about in our sermon series as we start out the new school year, I was praying and I felt very strongly that something it would be really helpful for us as a church to look at together is relationships. Not just romantic relationships, but all the different types of relationships that we encounter in life. Relationships with people in authority over us, relationships with friends or equals, uh, relationships romantically with spouses, um, relationships with people under our authority or with our children. Uh, all these different types of relationships, they're things that we interact with every day. And as you know, from being human, all these different types of relationships are hard. Navigating the dynamics of them can be tricky and confusing. And as a rule, our world is just bad at relationships, right? Like in the States, 50% of marriages end in divorce. In Hong Kong, the numbers are way lower, but from 1991 to 2019, the divorce rate in Hong Kong increased by 250%. And the Hong Kong government has made reports that say it's just increasingly popular for people in Hong Kong not to get married in the first place anymore. In the workplace, there was a study done by a website called paylab.com. It showed that four out of 10 employees in the workplace have relationships with their supervisor that is neutral or negative. That's almost half of employees don't have a great relationship with their boss. And I'm sure 
if you've been in or around churches for any length of time, you've known people who have left and moved from one church to another because of trouble with relationships within that church. Maybe you've done that yourself. Our world, we could keep going on with the list of the different ways our world is not great at relationships as a general rule. And yet as the church, relationships are one of the things that God calls us to be really, really good at. Like on his last night before dying, Jesus has one last meal with his disciples where he's reminding them of all the most important things that he's said and teaching them a couple new things that are really, really essentially important for them to understand if they're gonna follow him. And one of the things he tells them that night is the world around you, the way they're gonna know that you're my people is your love for one another. Like by being really good at relationships with one another, that's how the world is gonna know that you're mine. And so we're gonna take some time in the coming couple months to talk about and look at all these different types of relationships. But we're gonna do it by looking at them through the lens of the different relationships in the life of one character from the Bible, King David. And we're gonna look at different relationships that he had and see what we can learn from them, positive and negative. You know, one of the great things that I love about the Bible is that with the exception of Jesus, who is perfect, everyone else in the Bible has really, really huge major flaws. Like David sometimes did things really well and sometimes absolutely did not. Our family has this children's Bible that we like to read to the kids before bedtime sometimes. And in the introduction to the Bible, it says this. It says that some people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. We have a quote that we can put up on the screen. Yep, showing people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. And I think King David, as you'll see in the coming weeks, is this. He is a real person with good things about him and bad things about him, and they're all included in the Bible so we can learn from them. I mean, King David on the good side, he's called a man after God's own heart. He is the only person in the Bible to get that title. And on the bad side, he was an adulterer and a murderer and made some phenomenal mistakes as a husband and a father. He's got the highest of the highs on the good side and the lowest of the lows on the bad side. There's one book I read that summarizes David's life this way. It says, he was a man who dwelt in the searing glance of the divine, but who sweated and stank, rutted without restraint, butchered the innocent, betrayed those most loyal to him, who loved hugely and was kind, who listened to brutal truth and honored the truth teller, who flayed himself for his wrongdoing, who built a nation, made music that pleased heaven, and left poems in our mouths that will be spoken by people yet unborn. Again, you see the high highs and the low lows of David in his life. And so we're gonna look at the different relationships that he had throughout his life and what we can learn from those, from, from the good examples he set and the bad examples he set. And today we're gonna start by looking at David's relationship with someone in authority over him, and that is King Saul. And what we're gonna see with David and Saul is that David honors those in authority over them, even when they act dishonorably. 
David honors those in authority over him, even when they act dishonorably. And we'll look at David and Saul's relationship, see what lessons that has for us, talk about the true authority, and then look at how to live that out in our lives today. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word doesn't just give us ideal pictures of perfect people that we can never live up to, but shows us real people trying to follow you in the real struggles of day-to-day life. And we pray that as we look at King David's life in the coming weeks, that you would be showing us how to approach relationships in a way that honors you, that you'd be shaping our hearts to be people who want to honor you in the way we pursue our relationships, and that you would be strengthening us to love one another well. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, we have David and Saul's relationship. In case you don't know who David or Saul is, I'm gonna give you a little backstory. King Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. And at the start, he was a really good ruler. He was very humble at the start. He led the nation on some great military victories. And he started out really, really well. And then he became really successful. And the success got to his head. And he got kind of full of himself. And he thought too highly of himself. He thought so highly of himself that he thought he knew better than God. And on a couple different occasions, when God told him, I want you to do this, or I want you to do that, King Saul disobeyed. King Saul uh, did things that he wanted to do rather than the way God wanted him to do them. And after one of these incidents, God says to Saul, that's it, enough. You and your family, you cannot be kings anymore. I'm taking away the kingship from you and I'm giving it to someone else. And right after that, at that point in the story, we're introduced to King David. David at this point, he's just a little boy. He's out in the field as a shepherd, but he is chosen from there to be the next king of Israel, despite the fact that Saul is still on the throne. And right after David is chosen to be the, first, the, the next king of Israel, that's where our first passage we looked at today picks up. And Saul has what's described as a harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting him. Now, I don't know about you, I have some questions about how that all works, and I don't have all the answers. But there are two things that I think we see in the passage about this harmful spirit from the Lord that are really important to point out. First, Saul doesn't get this harmful spirit until he has already rejected God. It's almost like he rejects God and then God rejects him and causes harm to him after he has rejected God. The second thing is that despite this spirit tormenting him, Saul is never let off the hook for responsibility for his actions here. Saul is always seen as the primary one responsible for the things he does, uh, even when he's under the influence of this spirit. And because of this harmful spirit, Saul gets in some really terrible moods. And his servants suggest that he bring in a musician to play music for him, to calm him down and help him feel better. And Saul says, yeah, let's do that. And they hire David to come in and do the role. And from this point on, for basically as long as Saul is alive, Saul is the primary authority figure in David's life. And for adults in our world, I think there are probably three main areas where we have to interact with authority. One is government officials. 
whether that's lawmakers or police officers or tax people or immigration officers, the government has authority over us and we have to interact with authority through government officials. The second is in the workplace when we have bosses and supervisors. And the third is in family when we have parents or older relatives. All three of those in the government, in the workplace and in the family are different types of authority figures that we as adults still have to interact with. Becoming adults, teenagers, becoming an adult doesn't mean that you never have to deal with authority again. It just means you have different types of authority you have to deal with. And Saul, for David, becomes all three types of authority figure rolled into one person. He is the king, so he's the highest government official in the land. His word is law. He is David's boss, first when David's playing music as his court musician, and then later on when David becomes a military leader, Saul is his boss. And third, David ends up marrying one of Saul's daughters. And so Saul becomes his father-in-law, so an older relative. So Saul is a government official, a boss, and an older relative, all rolled into one, all the different types of authority in one person. And their relationship starts out really, really well. We see in chapter 16, verse 21, it says, when David comes and starts playing music, Saul loved David greatly. It's not like they had these immediate personality clashes or some type of discontent right away. The conflict comes later on between them. But at the start, Saul genuinely loves David and appreciates him and looks forward to having him there working for him. But the relationship quickly turns negative. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, a passage we skipped today, there's this man named Goliath and he is threatening the armies of Israel and he's big and strong and Saul and his entire army are too scared to fight him. But David comes and he fights on behalf of the nation and he conquers the giant and everyone in the nation begins to see David as a hero and they celebrate him. And as they return from battle, the, the women come out and they're singing these songs saying, Saul is great but David's even greater. And Saul, who's already been told by God that I'm gonna take this nation away from you and put someone else in king, starts feeling really, really insecure and really, really jealous. And rather than celebrate, yes, our country just won a great victory and this guy is helping solidify the strength and power of the nation that I'm ruling, Saul instead becomes angry and he becomes jealous of David's popularity and things quickly spiral out of control from there. The very next day, it says, David, this great military hero, he's gone back to playing music for Saul as Saul's in a bad mood. And Saul, while David is there trying to help him, picks up a spear and throws it at David to try to kill him. What a great reward for loyal service, helping, rescuing the nation. Let's kill him. And it says that David evaded him twice. Which like, hold on a second. Does that seem absurd to anyone else? Like if I'm at my workplace and my boss tries to kill me, I'm getting out of there. I'm not sticking around for him to be able to, to try again. But David, he's a great military hero. He comes back to do what seemingly seems like a, a more menial job of playing music for the king. And then the king tries to kill him and David's not like, oh man, let me get out of here. David's like, let me keep loyally serving the king 
And then the king tries to kill him again on the same day. And then Saul just has it out for David from then on. Saul realizes that he's promised his daughter to David in marriage for, for conquering Goliath. But Saul again sees an opportunity to try to take David out. He's like, hey, David, you can marry my daughter. I know you come from a poor family. You don't have the money to pay for a dowry. So instead, kill a hundred of our enemies and that can be your bride price. All the while thinking, yeah, there's no way David can do this. They're gonna strike him down. He's gonna die. I can say it's not my fault. The enemies did it. And of course, David goes out and strikes down 200 of the enemies to prove that he's really worthy of the king's daughter and comes home completely unscathed, which only makes Saul more insecure. And throughout the rest of Saul's life, he's constantly chasing after David. He gets his son, who's David's best friend, and he commands him, you need to kill David. And his son says, no. David, after that bad day where you know, Saul tried to kill him twice with spears, goes back to work again, playing music for the king. And the same thing happens again. And finally, this time, David's like, okay, I got to get out of here and stops working for Saul in that capacity. And that day when David goes home to his house, Saul sends soldiers to his house to murder him. Saul has it out for David. And, and eventually David just has to run away and go into hiding in the wilderness. And rather than say, all right, he's out of my life. I'm safe. I don't need to worry about him. Saul instead says, let me grab the military and chase him. Three different times he does this. The first time he's right on top of David about to catch him and he gets word that the nation is being attacked by their enemies and then the army is needed to protect the nation. So they have to turn around and go back. The second time he's got David right there. He needs to go to the bathroom and steps into a cave to go to the bathroom just happens to be the same cave that David's hiding in. David has a chance to kill him, but instead just cuts off the corner of his robe and then tells him once he's a safe distance away, hey, hey Saul, I had the chance to kill you, I didn't. And Saul's like, oh man, I shouldn't be killing David. Let's go home. And then he gets another bad mood and comes out for David again. <laughs> we read this one today. David, as Saul and his 3,000 most elite troops have chased David into the wilderness, David just walks through their camp in the middle of the night with one of his soldiers right up to Saul where he's sleeping. Again, chooses not to kill Saul, but just takes the spear and water jug from his side and again tells Saul, come on, I'm not out to get you. What, why are you chasing me? Why are you spending so much effort and energy trying to take me down? And that's the relationship between David and Saul. There's never reconciliation between them. David ends up eventually running away to live in the enemy territory so that Saul can't chase him there. And he stays there until Saul's dead and David's free to return to Israel and eventually become king. So that's David's relationship with the primary authority figure in his life for several years. And what can we learn for our lives about how to relate to people in authority over us by looking at David's relationship with Saul? Well, let's look at lessons for us. See, David, he manages to walk a very delicate line in his relationship with Saul.
Sorry about that. David manages to walk a very delicate line in his relationship with Saul. On one level, he is completely obedient to Saul over and over and over again. Saul tells him to do things and no task is too big for David. Saul sets David over huge groups of the army and David goes out and he conquers and he is a national hero. And then after doing that, Saul has David come back and play music for him in court. And David's not like, oh, come on, you can find other musicians. Don't, don't make me do that. I have bigger, important things to do. No, he doesn't. He obeys. He is completely obedient over and over again. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. He's totally obedient. And yet, at the same time, David has a strong enough sense of self that when it's necessary, he's able to leave. He's able to run away for the sake of his safety. And admittedly, he probably stayed longer than most, if not all of us would have stayed, right? If, if you're my boss and you actively try to kill me twice in one day, I'm done working for you. David stayed much longer. So David, he has this sense of loyalty that allows him to obey and be totally obedient to Saul as an authority figure but he is also aware enough of himself as an individual that when the situation requires it, he can step away. And then the third thing David did, and this is probably the hardest thing of all for any of us, is even after leaving Saul, David continues to honor Saul because of his position of authority. Right, like if, if I'm in a job and I am perfectly loyal to the boss and to the company and the boss just has a vendetta against me and tries to kill me over and over again, I'm leaving the job, but that's not all I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start uh, bad-mouthing the boss all over town. I'm gonna go back to the company and find the employees who seem to still be loyal to the boss and tell them about how horrible the boss is and try and turn them against the boss and get them on my side. I might even start plotting how to get physical revenge against this boss and physically harm him because come on, he tried to kill me when I did nothing wrong. And I know, I know I'm a pastor. I shouldn't do those things. I should forgive, but I'm also human. And that's how I would respond. But David does none of those things. He doesn't go start some smear campaign against Saul. He doesn't go try and get Saul's loyalists to abandon Saul and come side with David. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul and claim the throne for himself, and he doesn't do it. David, over and over again, shows honor to Saul. Because even though Saul himself is a totally dishonorable man, David respects the position of authority that God has given him. And so he honors Saul as king as an act of worship to God. Even though Saul as an individual is completely dishonorable, David respects the position of authority that God has given him. And he honors that position as an act of worship to God. So David does three things we see. He's completely obedient to Saul. He has the awareness and sense of self to get out when the situation requires it. But he continues honoring Saul and his authority even after he leaves. And in doing this, the Bible presents David as honoring God in that process. It presents David as handling the situation properly. Now, let me ask you, is there anyone here who finds it absolutely, completely easy to do all three of these things in relation to authority? To obey completely, to leave when necessary, and to keep honoring even after leaving? That's what I thought. 
Now, my guess is that most of us, if not all of us, find it much easier to do one or two of those three things and very, very difficult to do the other one or two. And which ones we find easy or hard are probably gonna be shaped by the culture we grew up in. And I, I'm about to paint a very broad, stereotyped picture, and I know this is a generalization with lots of exceptions, and it rarely plays out exactly like this. But I think looking at the world in large brush, stroke, brush strokes, there are two main types of cultures in our world today, and they each shape our approach to authority and, and give us different approaches to authority. First is what we might call the traditional approach, or maybe we would recognize it as a more Eastern approach. And this approach has a huge emphasis on things like obedience, harmony, filial piety. It, it emphasizes that you should obey authority, you should honor authority, which are good things. We saw that in David. But it can often emphasize these things, the, the group and the whole, at the expense of the individual identity. And so if this is your complete approach, the family or the company or the country can become so highly elevated that people are just unable to see themselves as individuals apart from the greater whole. And so when people in this culture use their positions of authority abusively and they hurt others with their power, people under their authority don't always have the awareness or sense of self to be able to, to stand up to them or to leave the situation. Instead, they can do things like internalize it and beat themselves up for not being good enough or for not doing enough. And they let themselves keep getting hurt. And here's the thing, obedience and honoring and respect are very important. The Bible has lots and lots of positive things to say about them. But the biblical reality is that God also created each of us as individuals who bear his image, who have incredible worth as individuals because we bear God's image. And any approach to life that underemphasizes that, that side of reality is gonna end up hurting people. So David, we see he has this approach of obedience and honoring, but he also has that recognition of himself as an individual that allows him to walk away when that relationship became dangerous and abusive to him. Now the flip side is what we might call the modern or the Western cultural approach. And that approach has a very strong emphasis on the individual self. But again, it can emphasize the individual self at the expense of the greater whole. In this approach, the individual is so highly elevated that people can really struggle to obey or honor authority. So whenever a boss or a parent or someone else in authority becomes difficult, Rather than obeying and honoring, people from this cultural background tend to fight back or walk away. And then they might go around bad-mouthing the authority, um, dishonoring them, maybe trying to tear down their work or their credibility. In our world today, they might try to cancel that boss for being difficult. And this side also has a partially true emphasis. Yes, God did make us as individuals. Yes, we do each have worth and dignity and value as individuals, but it misses out on the fact that the Bible teaches that authority is a good gift from God given to bless us and make our lives better. And that we ignore and reject the authority God's given us at our own peril. 
And again, we see David, he has the understanding of himself as an individual, but it doesn't keep him from obeying and honoring Saul as king. Even when he's running for his life from this king who's trying to murder him. See, in every culture, we have stories that were told about life and how life works best and how to find the good life. And in every culture, the stories that that culture tells us partly line up with what the Bible says is true and partly don't. They partly have good biblical emphasis that, and, and in those areas, it leads to blessing and abundance and prosperity in those cultures. But in the areas where they don't align with the Bible, it leaves those cultures open to harm and abuse and hurt. The Bible's perspective on life built around God and his word as the foundation. It's the only approach to life that allows us to live with proper balance and to live in ways that lead to full human flourishing without stepping too far to one side or the other. And when we don't live with the Bible's approach to life and instead we default to some version of our culture's teaching about the good life, it inevitably leads to pain. It might be pain because you know, we, we recognize I've given so much honor and obedience and I'm not getting any respect for that. I'm not getting any recognition for that. It might be pain because we're like, I, I've rejected all authority because I want to be free as an individual and I realize I still feel trapped even though I've rejected all the authority in my life. But either way, whether we're overemphasizing the side of obedience on honoring, whether we're overemphasizing the side of recognizing the individual, an imbalanced approach to authority leads to pain and suffering. And I'm guessing each of us can think of people we know, maybe even situations in our own lives where these wrong approaches have led to pain. You know, I have one friend who grew up very strongly in the more traditional culture, obedience, honoring, trying to do everything right for her parents. And she never could do enough. And she just stressed about wanting her parents to approve of her. And her stress eventually led to like rashes and skin conditions in her because it was so overwhelming, this desire for her parents' approval that she could never get. I'm sure all of us know people who are in jobs that they hate because they thought that by taking that job, their parents would be pleased with them. I have another friend who got an, a bad performance review at work and she so desperately wanted her boss's approval that she started working long, crazy amounts of overtime, pushing herself harder and harder. And every time the boss gave a negative review, she pushed herself harder to do better and eventually ended up in the hospital because she had worked herself too hard and she ended up incredibly sick. Those are some of the ways that things can go poorly when we overemphasize the group or the whole, but it also leads to harm on the flip side when we overemphasize the individual, right? When we overemphasize the individual, it leads to things like the breakdown of the family. It leads to higher crime rates because no one wants anyone else to tell them what to do. If you take it to its extreme, it just leads to anarchy in society, which is not a situation that allows anyone to prosper. So whether you overemphasize the group or whether you overemphasize the individual, whether you overemphasize obedience to authority or recognizing that you as an individual have worth and value, getting that balance out of balance 
leads to hurt and leads to harm. And like I said, all of us tend to lean more towards one side or the other of this equation. Different ones of us might have a tendency to one side or the other, but all of us struggle finding that right balance. But David had it. So how did he get that? How did he have that ability to walk that line so precisely? And how do we get that in our lives as well? And the answer is by knowing the true authority. See, David is able to live through the mistreatment that he gets from Saul with obedience and respect because he knows God is the ultimate and true authority in his life. Knowing that God is his authority gives him the strength to obey and honor Saul, but it also gives him the awareness that as God's child, I'm made in God's image. I have individual worth and value, and therefore I have the freedom to walk away when necessary as well. The fact that, that David's life is centered on God, it's one of the first things we learn about him. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, Saul is told that the kingdom is gonna be taken away from him and it's gonna be given to a man after God's own heart. And our first introduction to David is as that next king. So we know from the start, David is a man after God's own heart. When David is anointed as king in chapter 16, God's spirit rushes upon him. And so he's walking with God, following God, living in this life-giving relationship with God each day. And then what we saw today, Helen commented on this. When David is recommended as Saul's musician, one of the things they say as part of his CV is, the Lord is with him. She said, wouldn't it be great if people said that about our kids? We know from the start, David is someone whose life is totally centered on God. And because his life is totally centered on God, it gives him the balance he needs to live properly in relation to the other authority figures in his life. He's able to serve Saul, even though he gets a complete lack of affirmation from Saul, because he knows that he has affirmation from God. He's able to stay faithful to Saul and put himself in positions that are potentially harmful to him or physically dangerous to him because he knows God's his protector. For you and me today, and for everyone everywhere, if we don't have God as our ultimate authority in life, we're really only left with two options. Option one is to find some other authority figure and make them ultimate in our lives. Could be a parent, could be a boss, could be a king, could be whatever. But when we do that and we make some other authority figure ultimate in our lives, that person's opinion of us becomes the most important opinion in the entire world. We can't stand against them if they do something wrong because to stand against them would cost us our very sense of self. And so wherever they're going, whatever they're doing, however harmful it may be, we have to just follow along and approve of them. We're stuck. We can't walk away. That's option one. Or option two is we make ourselves ultimate. No one else can tell us what to do. We refuse to submit to any authority. The world just ends up in anarchy. Everyone does only what they want to do. It's not a situation where anyone can flourish. If we don't have God as our ultimate authority in life, we have two other options and neither leads to a right relationship with authority, neither leads to a healthy and prospering society. But how do we get that relationship with God? How do we learn to reach this place where God really is our true authority and we're relating to him properly as our authority? 
We do it by remembering who God is. We see in the Bible that he is the creator, which means that he is the king of the universe. We see that he is the savior, and part of that process of saving us is adopting us into his family so that he becomes our father. The Bible calls him Lord, which means he's our boss. He's the master. He can tell us what to do. In every realm of life where we interact with authority, the government, the family, the workplace, God is the ultimate authority in that place. And because of that, he's completely deserving of our obedience and our honor. And yet, unlike human authorities, he is the only source of authority that we'll never need to run from to keep ourselves safe. He never uses his authority to oppress us. He's never insecure with his authority. He's always safe for us. Rather than oppressing us and harming us and using his authority to abuse us, he actually does the exact opposite. He uses his position of authority to sacrifice himself for our good. The ultimate picture of this is Jesus' death on the cross to forgive us for our sins. What did he do? He, he laid down his rights. He gave up his safety. He gave up his life to do good for us. The cross is the guarantee that God's authority will only ever be used for good for those who trust in him. And it's only when we see God in this way and know him as our father and our king and our boss, our creator, our savior, our Lord, who uses his authority to bless us. And we find our security in him and we learn to perfectly submit to his authority that we have that balance in relation to earthly authority because we recognize that authority is put in our lives by God and therefore he calls us to obey and honor. But we also recognize that as God's children, we are loved and distinct and unique as individuals and therefore we have worth and value as God's children. And that if this authority is becoming harmful and dangerous and abusive to us, it is okay to walk away and it's not gonna cost us our identity. It's not gonna cost us our sense of self. Which is a really, really hard balance to walk, right? So what does that look like in practice in our daily lives, especially when authority goes wrong? I think it all depends a lot on your situation. You know, if the authority is good, it's pretty simple. We obey them, we honor them, just like God calls us to. But if the authority is bad, if it's becoming harmful and abusive to you or to other people around you, how do we walk this line of obedience and honoring yet being able to walk away? And David, I think again, gives us an example. He shows us there are times when submitting to authority is really hard, but it's, we're called to stay. And there are other times when it's time to leave. And to know which situation we're in, again, it requires us to be constantly living in a real life relationship with God, where we're constantly communicating with him, praying to him, inviting him into the real life details of day-to-day -day life constantly seeking his guidance, whether that's through his word, whether that's through Christian friends and the wisdom that they share with us, whether that's through him speaking to us more directly. We need to have hearts that are willing to listen and then willing to obey, even when what God is calling us to isn't what we would have picked for ourselves. 
In closing, I want to share two stories from my life of times where I've struggled with someone in authority over me and what it looked like for me to go through that process. And I'm sharing this not because I am the perfect example. I am far from it. I made plenty of mistakes in these situations and lots of others in my life. But I'm sharing because I'm hoping that by sharing, it, it can take these ideas and sort of root them in the real world of 21st century Hong Kong and give us more pictures from our world of what this could look like. So first story, I once had a boss. He accused me of being part of a conspiracy to get him fired. Now it was false, I was not part of any conspiracy, never was, never planned to be, but he was very insecure and interpreted some things I did as me just being out to get him, being out to try and take away his job and get him fired. And when he made that accusation, I was furious. I wanted to just stand up and start screaming at him and quit my job on the spot and slam the door in his face. Thankfully, I did none of those things. I just walked out of the room and I started praying. And I had some conversations with some trusted Christian advisors. And after hearing what these advisors has to say, I decided to stay at the job until my contract ended, which was seven months later. And man, going back to that office for those seven months, is one of the hardest things I've had to do in my life. Going back each day to a boss that I knew just really didn't like me, really didn't want me there, was looking for opportunities to, to like get me, you know, to hurt me. It reached the point where by the end of my time working there, if I had to go into that boss's office for a one-on-one -on -one meeting, I would physically start shaking just in fear of what was gonna happen in his office. It was terrible. But God used that time to teach me. You know, when I got to my next job, I had lots of great big ideas about what things were gonna be like there. And a lot of things about that job disappointed me and didn't live up to those expectations. But because I had this previous experience to look back on, I knew, you know, overall, this job's not too bad. You know, things could be a lot worse. I have supportive colleagues and bosses and things are going well. Like, I could complain and just focus on the negative, but there's a lot of positive here. Because I went through that experience of a very difficult boss, it gave me endurance and strength to be more effective and more impactful at my next job, to stick it out when maybe I would have, as a millennial, just had a tendency to quit and give up and walk away. And God used that to give me perspective, to help me be impactful. I would not be here at the bridge today if I had not stayed in that first job. I can look back at a series of things that God's led me through in my life and I can say, if I had left that job like my initial instinct was right away, I would not be here today. Now that's not to say, hey, if you have a horrible boss and you're struggling, you must stay indefinitely. No, I'm, I'm just sharing what it looked like for me in that context to walk through that process, asking God for guidance and sticking around, following what I thought he was calling me to do, even when it wasn't easy. It's not a one size fits all solution. Second story, another situation, I had a boss and we just had a lot of conflict with one another. Working for him was really hard. We miscommunicated with one another all the time and it just started turning really negative in our relationship. It reached the point where whenever one of us would say something to the other one, the other one would just sort of interpret it in the worst way possible and it just got worse and worse and sort of spiraled out of control. I was miserable working for him. He was miserable having me work for him. 
I'm pretty sure he came really close to firing me on multiple occasions and he would have been fully justified in doing that. I wanted out of that job. I prayed to God to get me out. I talked to some trusted Christian advisors who all said like, this doesn't sound like a good situation for you. Maybe it's a good idea to get out. I started applying for other jobs and nothing was opening up. And so I was like, what do I do? I guess I just stay for now because I still have a job here. I need the income. I kept working, kept trying to do the job as well as I could. And months went by of me just being stuck in that job. And eventually, as this boss and I were forced to keep working together, we learned to communicate better with one another. We had some good conversations where we got to the root of our conflict and we were able to work it out and apologize to one another and forgive one another. And to this day, he and I are really good friends. And almost as soon as that happened, another job opened up. That was a better fit for me than what I was doing there. And I ended up leaving that uh, and moving to the new job. But because we had been able to come to that reconciliation, I wasn't leaving to run away from him. I was leaving because I felt very clear that this is an opportunity that God is calling me to. But again, that process of reconciliation with that boss, it wouldn't have happened if I just left the moment things got hard. Even though I thought God's probably calling me to leave, I also had clarity that he's not really sending me anywhere else and I don't have anywhere else to go for now. So just stuck it out and tried to be faithful where I was. And God used that. And again, that's not to say that's what you must do if you're in that situation with a difficult authority figure. The key is not do what I did, but the key is what does it look like for you to have a process of communicating with God, looking to him for wisdom and guidance and, and following his leadership in these things. Submitting properly to authority in our world, it's not easy. David shows us the steps are simple. Obey, be able to walk away, keep honoring, but they're incredibly hard. And unless we have an active living relationship with God, where we see him as our true authority, where we know that he is the perfect authority who will never abuse us, who will never hurt us, who will never, will never have to walk away from him until we know him in that way, we're never going to have the freedom to interact with human authority properly because either we're going to fight against it or we're going to be defined by it. But God gives us the freedom to navigate that properly. And so I want to invite you today to trust in him and learn to interact properly with the authority that he's put in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of authority that you've given us. We thank you for your authority and the way that you use it to bless us and do good to us, even when it costs you. We thank you for the human authorities that are a blessing to us, that bring order and stability in society, that teach us how to do things in ways that we couldn't have done without their input. And God, we pray for wisdom as we try and navigate dealing with authority in a broken world where sometimes that authority goes wrong or sometimes that authority is just difficult. I pray that you give us hearts to obey the authority that you put in our life, to honor the authority you've put in our life, but also an awareness of the value that you've given to each of us that allows us to walk away when that authority becomes harmful. And I pray that in that process, each of us would seek you constantly and learn to walk in step with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.